So before I get into like all of the different traveling I got to do when I was in Asia, I got to cover the Hong Kong. The Hong Kong run is what it was really called. I was going to say the Hong Kong shuffle or something, but somebody might have called it that. The Hong Kong run is what you had to do all the time because if you're on a, living there on a travel visa, you got to renew your visa every 90 days or 60 days, depending on what country you're coming from. So it's something like lots and lots of expats. By the way, I don't know really why we're called expats and not like illegal immigrants. I guess it sounds better. I tried to figure, you know, there's actually, that's an interesting topic to get into. But it's something you have to do. And if you're going to change your visa from a travel visa to a work visa or this kind of work visa to that kind of work visa or even passport-related stuff, you really need to go to Hong Kong. And it's not something you're like, I'll just Google it and it'll tell me exactly what I need to do. No, no, no. You have no idea how dependent you are on Google, my friend. And so China has Baidu, and it's a limited internet. It's not the World Wide Web. And if you go to the official website like you would here and go, I'm just going to get the official information, it's not going to give you the official information. It'll give you some information, maybe official, may not be official, may be obsolete, may be updated, but not in progress. So even if you call these places and you're like, yeah, here's what I plan on doing, am I going to be able to do that? I mean, I kind of touched upon that in Beyond Mayo episode from last season, but, you know, probably they'll say, well, you'll have to do it and we'll find out. So you'll be like, is it illegal? Will I get in trouble? And they'll be like, you'll have to do it and then we'll know if it's illegal or not. So there's no assurance. It's pretty much life over there and probably lots of other places. But the Hong Kong run is something you got to do. And each year... Almost, it would be a little different because visa laws were changing. It was like, think of it this way. It's like you're not supposed to be illegally living there. So they kind of press down on it and they don't want you to know what you can and can't do. But at the same time, it's kind of understood that lots of people in China are living under travel visas or work visas that are like changed from travel visas. And you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to fly back to your home country and process a work visa if you, like, find a job with a travel visa, right? And this is, like, one of the laws that changed while I was living there. But it's, it's again, really hard to find out what's enforced and what really the laws are. Like, can you go through the port of entry to Hong Kong, get your visa stamped, immediately turn around and come back into China? Or will they say, hey, you just left, you can't do that, you can't just simply, you know, get the stamp and that's enough? But nobody would really know whether you could do that kind of thing or not. There was one guy named Magic, and he was Magic in Shanghai. He was a Shanghainese older guy, would wear a blazer. And I got his name and number, I think, through Kit, my roommate, who had been in Shanghai already for like 10 or 12 years. And he was kind of famous amongst the expats who knew better or knew enough to contact him because he did know a lot of the ins and outs. Like, like once I remember... You never know. There's all these like constraints, whether you're going to get the letter from your, let's say, your employer giving you a work visa or the several bureaus that have to okay it. And you might have to overstay your visa. And he told me, if you ever have to overstay your visa, you don't go directly through the Hong Kong port of entry through Shenzhen. Shenzhen is the city that borders Hong Kong and southern Guangdong. Instead, you ought to go through uh, Almond, which is uh, Macau in English. If you were to go through Almond, Macau, 
they may not penalize you, even though it's the same law that you're going through. So that kind of thing exists in China all the time. It's like I mentioned, I misspoke, by the way, on that episode from last season, Beyond Mayo. It's like if the front door is closed, you go around the back. I think I said open. Yeah, I don't have any commenting or way to contact me because I don't want to hear any feedback until I finish my series. You know what I mean? Anyways, he told me once, Magic told me, that he told two guys that were both overstayed the same amount of days to not go through the Hong Kong Shenzhen port of entry. One of them listened to him and the other one didn't. The one that went through Macau was like, fine, something that was affordable. The guy who was going directly through Shenzhen into Hong Kong was put in jail for like a month. So that's how dramatic it was. But he would know things like, you know, these, these, and you would never know any of this stuff until you become like an expat abroad. But when you get your visa issued, embassies all around the world are different and they don't necessarily communicate. So you might get a work visa issued or a travel visa issued in Malaysia and it would be a different looking visa or stamp, but the standards would be different. You know, you probably never thought of that, but, you know, it's the embassy of China that's giving you the visa. It's not America. So they're all different. And even like when I first came to China, it was like if you were to pretend you lost your if you overstayed and lived a long time in China, you would you could say that you lost your passport and then try to get it. Another one issued from the American embassy. And then you get a mark on your passport that says you lost it. So they're going to always like basically, uh, you know, pull you aside and give you interrogations when you used your passport. So it's not something you should do, but it was one of those, like, if you had to do it things. And it was all those kinds of ins and outs, ins and outs. If you had to do it, how would it be done? And what could you expect? And also what you maybe can't expect. There's always lots of things you can't expect. So my first run, my first Hong Kong run was like, I, it was kind of scary. I didn't want to leave Shanghai and go into this other, they're called special administration regions, but it's basically a foreign country. And I was like just getting to know Shanghai. And before I started to record this podcast, I checked. So I kept a blog for three months, a daily blog when I moved to China. And I wanted to verify that my memories were correct when I first started going to Hong Kong. And, um, I'm just going to mention, so the book is called Vast Contrast. I published the blog, which they call a book. Book. It's called Vast Contrast, an American's New Start in Shanghai, China, Volume 1. And I published it under the pseudonym Petey De Flip, which is P-E-T-I-E space D-I-F-L-I-P, which is my grandfather's name. The reason I did that is because I was paranoid, obviously, about living in, quote, communist, end quote, China. And I didn't want, you know, like what I'm telling you now, you don't want that to become so well known that now you're a target and you can't live there anymore. So that's why also you can't really learn that much about China by like the way I was learning about China before I moved to China was like, oh, the economy and like they're opening factories here and the their money and moves moving here and data this and policy that. And thinking that I know a lot about China or, I mean, in some respect I did, but everything I learned about China by living in China, it's never things you can just read about or hear about like your lucky ass is hearing right now. 
because people are afraid to say that stuff because it kind of like locks you out of being able to get back in China. When you do hear stuff about China that you shouldn't say, it's like people get these are like people that have animosity towards China or like, you know, don't want to live in China. So and I don't have any I don't have animosity or don't want to live in China. As I, I told you in earlier episodes when I really wanted to kiss the ground after I was banned and got back in. Anyhow, I had to go down to Hong Kong to change my travel visa to a work visa. I was given an address for a bureau. Never been to Hong Kong before. Kit gave me the name. My roommate gave me a name of a of affordable, you know, hostel hotel room. And I was going to have to figure it out. And I was checking my blog book to make sure that my memory was correct. And of course, I don't remember. I mean, I reading it, I remember now, but I didn't remember a lot of that stuff. It's a good story. In fact, I stopped reading it because I think if you want to know those kinds of details, you should just read the book. I think it's like $14 on Amazon, and I don't get any of that money. It was the lowest price that they'd let me. Isn't that crazy? $14 is like, who even gets that? But um, that's an account in detail, and that's probably more interesting if you want to know the details and stuff. But I was reading in there and laughing because it, it... it reminded me that when the taxi driver picked me up, I was still in like mainland China mode and I went to hand him like the address and he was like, just tell me the address. I speak English, okay? And he was pissed off. And while he's driving me there, he's like, oh, you must be in mainland China for the big money. And I was like, no, I, I, I want to learn Mandarin. And he goes, fuck Mandarin. So that was before really I learned about more and more of the feeling of Hong Kong knees towards mainland China. Cause I mean, nowadays, if you were to really look into what's happened over there, I won't get into it, but I didn't know. I mean, I don't even know if there was clues about it. Um, but that's, that's not really for my podcast to talk about, but basically like mainland Chinese are not very welcome in Hong Kong. And it's something, if I talk about more trips I've taken. So over time, I've visited Hong Kong probably anywhere from 12 to 20 times, less than 20, but it's up there. And so I learned more and more as I went. But my first trip, like when that guy dropped me off, it was nighttime and it was in Hong Kong, which was a, it's a very, very narrow, roaded and tall building, narrow buildings city. And you don't know how safe anything is. You're Anytime you're the outsider in a foreign place, like you should be on alert. And I felt really uncomfortable. I was really glad that he dropped me off where I needed to go because if he didn't, I would have been in deep shit. And so I started to read that account in the book and talking about the way that the Chinese lady, young girl who checked me in looked like, the way her hairstyle was. It was all way different. And it's a different country. I mean, for all intents and purposes, as I said in the book, it is a different country. It's a different culture. So in the morning when I... I do distinctly remember coming out of there and just sitting on a stoop and looking at people walking by for like a good half hour. Like I didn't, I didn't feel like I should go anywhere or do anything. I should just sit there and take in this weird experience because I knew enough about Hong Kong that it like that it, I knew it was a separate place and how it came to be, but I didn't know what Hong Kong knees were like, you know? So that was like a culture shock experience. It's one of the two times I had. The first was when I landed in China. 
and mainland China. And the, the second was landing in Hong Kong. And, you know, there's a lot of these like vlog series of people traveling around videotaping themselves. And I'm telling you, man, that is such bullshit. That is not experiencing something raw. If you're carrying around this little security blanket of a camera that you could talk to in English and be like, oh, here we go, guys. I'm turning the corner. Whoa, look at that guy. He's wearing a turban. Like, weird. You know, that is not, you'll never get culture shock. And you won't get it when you're traveling with your buddy. I mean, it's more, it's less likely. And you certainly won't get it if you have access to the World Wide Web and all that stuff. So it's almost like a dying thing to really know what culture shock is. I definitely got it in Hong Kong while I sat there because it was like I couldn't figure out what it was, which is totally fair. I mean, I had lived in New York for a short time and Boston for a short time and, you know, now Shanghai for a short time. And it was like I'm trying to, like, place it. And it was took me a minute, 30 minutes probably, to get up and walk. But I think what I'm just going to touch on in this podcast is is a little of the memories I have of the early trips to, to Hong Kong. That first one, I did go to the bureau and get everything done and get back to Shanghai. And uh, like I said, the details will be in the book if you care to read it. I mean, I would just give it to you if I could. I wonder if I can even do that. I wonder if I could reinstate that blog um, or figure out another way to get that out. But... Uh, I was trying to remember some of my early trips. In fact, I couldn't remember my first trip and let, until I looked at the, the book because I have a memory of going to Hong Kong via Macau, like I mentioned some people did. And I went my first trip to Guangzhou. Guangzhou is, I th it's also known as Canton, and you know Cantonese, right? So that's on, I think it's called the Delta River, uh, something like that. Um, and it was a major like British port before the creation of Hong Kong. That's where a lot of the opium was coming in. And so that was a very developed city. And that's where mostly people spoke Cantonese and still do. Um, I went through to Hong Kong via Guangzhou and I met up with a girl and I, I was trying to remember how I knew this girl. Uh, and I, I really can't. Remember, I think I might have talked about um, going into Second Life in earlier podcasts, which was a 3D virtual reality internet world, and I might have met her through that. If not that, it would have been a dating place, but I think the only dating things I looked at were mainly Shanghai, and it wasn't like even much of that. So I'm just going to guess that it was through Second Life. Because, um, I mean, her, ah, her name was Lucy. Uh, she spoke English really well, but she was annoying as fuck, dude. A beep sensor. Um, <laughs> I got two days in Guangzhou, and it was super cool because, like, downtown Guangzhou, that's like the new development with the big tall buildings and the cool parks and all that stuff. But I also just got on some random random buses, and I mentioned in previous podcasts, like, I always recommend that because it's like a free tour, right? You're just you're gonna see the real thing. I just remember the big trees. And the, the importance of the shade of those trees because of the heat from the sun. Um, and we went together. I don't know how I pulled that up, but we went together to Macau. And I can't remember much. I mean, we just hit all the spots you're supposed to check out around the island, the church, 
which I maybe have a, uh, another story about later. Um, and I, we went to a restaurant uh, and I got shrimp, like shrimp salad, and we split. She went back to mainland and I went to Hong Kong from there on a boat. And when I got to Hong Kong, I got maybe the most sick I ever got. And I had already checked in. It was the same hotel or hostel, whatever it is, really tiny rooms. I mean, like closets, really, walk-in closets. And I got so sick, I was pretty sure I was dying. I mean, I couldn't even see straight. Everything was blurry, and it was really scary because, like, what do you do? I mean, I called the front desk, and I was like, is there any way somebody could bring me a yogurt? Like, I'm really, really sick. And they were like, no. So I was just... I mean, I was, my, my mattress was like a waterbed. I was sweating so much. I was probably diarrheaing and vomiting. I mean, it must have been. By the time I could get out of bed, I had to walk down to the corner to 7-Eleven. And I was a complete zombie. It was insane. I mean, it was like an insane thing to have to do when you're that sick. That was one of my early memories of going to Hong Kong. And, uh, and I guess I figured out, because I didn't go and meet Inti earlier, that I knew somebody in Hong Kong. I guess that's what happened because in Second Life, I did meet somebody named Inti who lived in Hong Kong and I eventually must have contacted her and I had a friend that I went to college with in Boston for the minute I went to college in Boston named Tony and they were both Hong Kongese. So I'm trying to think if I met with them the first time. Yeah, I think it is the first time. I think it's in my book. So I apologize, but... That was fantastic because I ended up going to like a, a real Cantonese bar with Cantonese, a Cantonese band. Like there's lots of bars in Hong Kong, but there's clearly like foreigner or expat or Western bars. And then there's lesser Western bars, which are more like for the local Cantonese. That, that is one of the interesting aspects of Hong Kong, how it didn't seem like they, uh, their cultures really meshed to form one culture. There was like the Cantonese, Hong Kongese, and the British culture of Hong Kong. But when we went to that bar, they taught me to speak or be able to count to, I guess, 10 or 12, whatever, however many rolls of dice you can count. Because in, in mainland China, they played it too, but in Hong Kong, they play dice. They shoot dice, I guess. I don't know what that game is called, but you, maybe it's called bullshit. And you, you roll the dice in a cup and you tell everybody the number, the total number of your, your roll. I think you're supposed to go up. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are laughing at me because it's like, dude, explain it better, dude. But I think it's like, all right, I got five and then, and then you're going to have to roll a six and then you're going to have to roll a seven. Could be wrong. But you say I rolled a seven and I can call bullshit. And if you, if you did roll seven, then I drink. And if you didn't, then you drink. So it's a drinking game. And you'll see that like around China, maybe outside of China. So we played that and I got to speak Cantonese. I was able to remember how to say all the numbers. So I was having like the time of my life. I was sitting between two Hong Kong knees, watching a Hong Kong knees band play in a Hong Kong knees bar, drinking probably alcohol I wouldn't be able to get in mainland China. And that was one of my early memories in Hong Kong. And Bruce Lee is like one of my top heroes. I mean, 
it, you could argue whether or not I would have even moved to China if I hadn't discovered Kung Fu and Bruce Lee or Bruce Lee and Kung Fu. They're kind of synonymous in a lot of ways. But I remember being like, dude, you got to take me to where Bruce Lee lived or where Bruce Lee practiced Kung Fu. And they were like, in America, dude. He learned Kung Fu in America. Now, that's not true. He learned from a guy named Ip Man, who everybody knows now. By the way, that movie and the story is not accurate. But uh, that was before the movie Ip Man. So mainly he developed his Jeet Kune Do. His own style of no style was developed in America, which is just funny because, you know, here I come all the way to Hong Kong as an American. And they're like, you got to go to America to see where he developed his Kung Fu style. But it must have been in, jeez, uh, now I can't think of that. There's a, there used to be a separated place where the Cantonese would live and the British would live. And this was like the Mecca, the main hub for where the Cantonese lived. And that's where Bruce lives. So a lot of that, I guess, has been torn down. I had stories about they didn't have, they weren't able to expand outwards. So they would just build up and up and up. And they had like shanty on top of shanty on roofs of tall buildings. So I guess a lot of that's gone now, but there was there was like a newly installed statue of Bruce Lee along the skyline, what they call something like Celebrity or Hollywood. It, they have their own kind of Hollywood walkway, you know, and there's a statue of him there. And that, that was really a big deal for me to see because it was kind of a, a little bit of a full circle thing. Bruce Lee inspired me mm, definitely more than anybody ever had. I was inspired like by Michael Jackson and Michael Jordan as a kid, Paul McCartney as a teenager, and Bruce Lee was really my last and final like mentor hero. And there I was in China. So that was a big deal. But that bureau that you had to go to and get your visa process and stuff, that ended up like I think they got rid of it or they changed it or you couldn't do it the same way anymore. So those kinds of visa runs weren't really happening anymore for me anyways. But you still had to, like, leave the country and come back. So that's why I had to go to Hong Kong so many times. And Inti became, like, an incredibly close friend of mine. I was thinking, you know, there's something about friendships where you're really close when you're together. But then when you're not together, you don't talk that much. That's really a special thing because you have close friends throughout your life. That you kind of hate, but you also love. You know what I mean? It's like you know them so damn well, you don't want to get rid of them. And you can't really get rid of them. And you shouldn't get rid of them. Um, and then you have friendships that are like, just when you do meet, it's just like, you're like family. I mean, anyway, I feel like that about auntie, like just, I love her to death. Um, and she took me in a lot. She ended up having a roommate that moved out and she had an open space in her apartment. So I had a free place to stay when I would go down there. She would make time for me. We'd walk around the city. We would have like kind of loose agenda and she'd take me to places to eat. And we would always talk about you know, people watching to me because it's Hong Kong and it was different. And I talk about why it's different or what I felt about. And she would participate in that with me and be like, yeah, that does. Or we would both be like, oh, there's a mainlander. You know, they would stand out. But I don't want this to be like a, I'm describing Hong Kong to everybody podcast. I really just wanted to get this out of the way because a principle of living in China would be for an expat of my statue would be to stature would be to have to leave every 60 days. And so 
the cheapest thing to do would be to Hong Kong, but if you went to Hong Kong enough, you'd really wish that you could go somewhere else, but you need to pump up that budget a little bit more. So later on, I mean, I would barely, barely have the money to go to other places. And um, I want to talk about those stories because some of like those are, are real adventurous to me. I just didn't want to skip over the fact that I had to go to Hong Kong all the time. And uh, there, was, there was, I have another friend in Shenzhen and I did go through that way a lot of the time. So that was great too because I'd go to Shenzhen and I'd have a friend there. This was Yatin, which was the third girl. If you listen to my early podcasts of like my first trip to Shanghai, the two-part series, and I said there was Mazi, there was Zoe, and then the third one was Yatin. Yatin lived in Shenzhen. So when I go to Hong Kong, sometimes I'd go through via Shenzhen and, and hang out with Yatin. I'd stay in a hotel, and like for two or three days, I'd check out Shenzhen, which was great. And then I would do a couple days with Indy, and then I'd fly back to Shanghai. So some of those stories might pop up later. I mean, uh, for example, I did want to mention that I did overstay my visa going through the Hong Kong border, and it wasn't cool. I was only like a day over, I think. So who knows? That's one of the many things you just don't know. There's no official anything. You're looking at your visa, and you say, like, it's stamped on this day. Do you count that day, or do you not count that day? You have to leave within 60 days. Does it include that day? Does the day you leave include... You don't know. So it was a day over. They purposely make you really uncomfortable. They put you in a tin metal room and they just leave you sitting there for a long time because they want you to be worried and they don't want you to be overstaying. And, you know, you know that they know that you're living in China when they look at all the stamps you have on your visa. And it's just a question of, like, do they want foreigners living in China like that? Because, like, once... A year or two years or three years, there's like a purge where the police supposedly, I can't verify, I didn't see it happen, supposedly go out to like all the Western bars in Shanghai or Beijing. They would do it independently of each other, these purges, and they would just start checking visas. You're supposed to have your passport with you at all times. Of course, you live somewhere. You're not carrying your visa, I mean, your passport with you. You wouldn't want to because you probably would lose it. And then you're really in, really in deep shit. So... They would go to these bars at night and they would check people's visas and if they didn't have them or if they had them and they were like travel visas that looked like they were living off of them. They also did that in like uh, English centers. They would, the police would come. It's really all, like I mentioned previously, kickbacks. Like if you're not paying the police off, they'll purge. They'll come in and while you're teaching, they'll ask to see your passport. And if you're teaching and you have a travel visa, like you're in deep shit. And apparently a lot of people got deported those ways. So since I overstayed and it looks like I'm living in China, you know, I'm I'm the prime suspect. You talk about Americans who are always talking about illegal immigrants. I mean, you know that people are split. Like some people are like, it's great, you know, more foreigners coming to America and that's what we all are. And then there's people like, dude, there's too many foreigners in America that can't just be coming in and working illegally. Well, I mean, I'm sure this same sort of thing exists in China, but not like through the citizens. They don't know or care. But through the government, you know, whether it's the authoritarian uh, police, I shouldn't say authoritarian, the authority figures of the government, authoritarian, I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? Whether it's the police or it's the bureau or whatever it is, I'm sure there's half and half. And that's why I think there are purges and stuff sometimes. So they make it really uncomfortable and uh, they'll tell you, don't ever do that again, right? 
And then you remember my story before about having done it for the third time and the consequences. Well, you know, I don't remember anybody telling me that. And I'll probably get to the second time it happened and how that went. I don't know when. I, I actually wanted to tell that story because it's my trip, one of my trips. I don't want to say which one. So it doesn't give it away. Um, but I really wanted to get Hong Kong covered before I get into some of the other trips because that was like the, the bread and butter of living in, in mainland China. So it's really convenient if you live in Shenzhen, although I managed to mess that up. Um, you just got to come and go, you know, and it's it's a it's tough because if you ever were to get sick or something, you're always you're always in the back of your mind. How many days do you have left before you got to go? And remember, you got to go. There can't be any reason that you don't go. You got to have the money to go. You got to make sure you get there. It doesn't matter if you got a virus. It doesn't matter if you have an important thing. Like work-wise, you got to go. And you also want to stretch it out as long as you can because you're going to have to go again. If you go early because you're worried about being late, you know, well, now you just cost yourself like five more days or whatever it is that you could have got. So you're paying like it's almost like another utility cost. And it's tough, man, because it's a tax, too. You got to have them. A lot of like Chinese will complain, you know, foreign teachers are paid too much. They don't consider that kind of stuff. I mean, if you're on a work visa, you don't have to do that all the time. But even if you're on a work visa, you still have to be able to go to Hong Kong or wherever to get it issued. Or like I said, you supposedly back to your home country. All that stuff costs money, man. Like eventually you're going to have to leave China. That's going to cost money. If you're making these Hong Kong runs, that's going to cost money. So in like the ch local Chinese mind, they're like, man, he's getting paid more than he should. They don't know that what your expenses are just to live there. And you come there with a suitcase and you got to live there. So you're going to have to buy everything from the bottom up. And you're going to have to abandon it when you leave. So that's basically a brief introduction to what a Hong Kong run is. And pretty much all the expats have had to do it. And it changes all the time. I don't know if people are still doing it. And obviously, like the Hong Kong situation, the relationship with mainland China is changing all the time, too. They're phasing out some of the things that separate the regions, whatever, separate so I don't know how long or what people are going to be doing in the future. Things definitely get more and more technical in terms of like IT and being able to verify stuff that didn't used to be. So the game's always changing. But while I lived there, there were still Hong Kong runs and uh, and they weren't easy. And everybody had a different experience. And some people, for some people, that was the breaking point where they went back to their country. That's how hard it could be to do. And just remember, man, like nobody's really fighting for you. In, in the end, you're really you're really on your own. So. So that should give you the context on having to leave the country every 60 days. I was on 14 different visas throughout my years there, and some of them required me to leave a lot. Uh, and I didn't always go to Hong Kong, but mostly I went to Hong Kong. So now we have the context. And when I get into my other trips, I'm talking about low budget now. Uh, how those came to be was all relative to me having to leave the country. <laughs>